0: Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio features a conversation between two writers who also illustrate books for children. Ari Chung, best known for his book Ninja, first met Ashley Bryan at a conference almost 10 years ago when he was still an aspiring author. Then as now, Ashley was a living legend in the literary world. At the age of 19, he was drafted out of art school and into a segregated army during World War II. He survived, in part, by drawing, stowing supplies in his gas mask when necessary. After the war, Ashley completed his art degree, studied philosophy and literature at Columbia University on the GI Bill, and then went to Europe on a Fulbright scholarship, seeking to understand why humans choose war. He would go on to become the first African American to publish a book he both wrote and illustrated, and would then publish more than 50 books and win numerous awards, including the Coretta Scott King Virginia Hamilton Lifetime Achievement Award, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Medal, and the New York Public Library's Literary Lions Award. Throughout the United States and Africa, libraries, children's rooms, and literary festivals are named for Ashley. Ashley. As nice as these honors are, Ashley says it's the joy of creation and the excitement he sees in children's eyes that delight him most. Ashley published his most recent book, Freedom Over Me, last September at the age of 93, and many consider it his most powerful work yet. Based on an actual 1828 document that lists 11 people for sale, along with cows, hogs, and cotton, Ashley imagines the lives of these slaves in their full humanity, Black people who were trafficked for the profit of white people and who fought back by singing, loving, and secretly teaching one another to read. I recently called up Ari to talk about Ashley's influence on his own work and their conversation at the 2016 festival. Hello. Hey Ari, it's Lisa Cockrell. Hi Lisa, how are you? I'm good, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, thanks for calling.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Where did we catch you today?
1: Oh, I'm... Just uh, working on some illustrations at home.
0: Cool. (laughs) Is is this a home office? Do you typically work at home, or are you uh, you work out an
1: office? uh, My office is Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like many of us. (laughs) Oh yeah, and
1: I. uh... I pay them well. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. By the hour, almost.
1: I did, I know.
0: Well, again, thanks um, for being willing to talk about this. I knew you were a big fan of Ashley, but I didn't realize that you had met him, actually, years before um, at a conference. So tell me about meeting Ashley for the first time, and what what first drew you to him?
1: Yeah, well, um, I was just starting my children's book, Endeavor, so I I knew I wanted to make picture books, and uh, the... Uh, go-to place to learn and connect with publishers and editors and agents and other bookmakers is uh, SCBWI, Society of Children's Books Writers and Illustrators. But one of my first um, national conferences that I went to, uh, I actually didn't know who Ashley was at the time. Um, I just went to a breakout session and and I just heard him uh, speak and share his work and share his love of poetry. And I immediately became a fan, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's so hard to, um, to make this career happen and you have to have a lot of um, passion and determination and grit and just hearing his story and still, you know, he still has the curiosity and the, um, the life of a child, you know? Really
0: he does, right.
1: Yeah. So, um, I was immediately a fan and, and when you had invited me and Asked me if I'd love to interview him. I jumped at the opportunity. I was like, <laughs> wow, it's so amazing. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, I think one of the things that really comes through in your conversation with him is the extent to which Ashley is just fearless when it comes mm-hmm. to what, um, the idea of play, and also oh, like yeah. connection with other people, uh, mm-hmm. which are things that, as you mentioned, he's got. He kind of has the life of a child. There's something so deeply almost childlike in his like willingness to play and connect with other people that frankly I think as adults we become much more sheepish about or kind of self-conscious in ways that kind of stifle those instincts and he's managed to continue to cultivate those um those aspects of his life and his work Um, you know he says like always be connecting Uh, and he's even like engaging the audience during the talk you know you can see that Um, and I wondered how those examples have even like influenced your own work your thoughts about your work as you've been trying to kind of create um, a career and just create work um, that that connects with children
1: Um, yeah for sure I I think uh, just from observing his art and seeing how he collages things together and how he's cutting things up, And I think in the interview he mentioned using, um, his mother's, uh, scissors, mm-hmm. um, that, that were, you know, that he wasn't able to play with before. And now he's, you know, inherited them. He gets to play with them now mm-hmm. is, um, you know, just seeing his work and also listening to him talk about how he thinks about things. It just also reminds me that the best work comes out when you're having fun and not to be afraid of playing and I think you're right like most people um, as they get older be become afraid of playing around of you know not everything has to have a exact purpose mm-hmm. <laughs> it's okay to mess around it's okay to um, to cut things up and paste things together and just make things out out of the curiosity of it you know mm-hmm. I look at those. Um, those uh, wooden sculptures, or those sculptures that he's made from found objects on the beach, and I just think they're so cool. And you know, you, you just—he's just grabbing things and reacting to them, and tapping into that inner voice. And that's what makes you a unique artist, you know. So I try to take those lessons, and and just—it just inspires me because it, you know, you never know what you're going to be fascinated with next, and what you want to make.
0: Mm -hmm, for sure yeah yeah
1: and I hope I'm you know as when I'm 90 something that I'm making work as well and and just as vibrant and curious and passionate about making things and sharing them you know Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. part about community I think was really um uh really powerful as well because he moved to different cities and different places to connect to new people Mm -hmm. And, and he had mentioned in his interview that um, that he didn't want to just be around just uh, intellectuals that were making art, or you know, he wants to connect, connect to everyone. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. One of the things that that um, that he that, he, that you, you both talk about in uh, in the conversation as um, as authors who are also illustrators is the way in which you're using you know um, the way in which we use art you know both words and images as ways to get closer. To something for which there's not really any words or images, um, and so there's like kind of this interesting way in which you're trying to create um, pathways. Um, and I wonder in your in your experience, which which kind of comes first in your work, the words or the images, um, or is is that a helpful way of thinking about it?
1: Well, I, I've 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 uh, been thinking about storytelling as um, words and images, and that. Images are a medium per se, and words are another medium. Mm-hmm. I, I actually teach a a, uh, a a course on making picture books, and I encourage writers to draw. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, I get pushback. They're like, "What?" It's- People tell me that, you know, writers shouldn't draw. And I'm
0: like,
1: anybody can draw. You used to draw when you were five, right? It's good not to put those limitations on yourself and just to think of it as what's the best way I can tell the story.
0: So for you, um, a story comes before you even are thinking words or images. It's a story. maybe.
1: Yeah, sometimes, the, sometimes you have just like an, uh, an image that you see in your head or you see in life. You mm-hmm. see something, you observe it and you're like, oh, I need to capture that. So, you know, how do, can you capture it as fast as you can? Sometimes you scribble it in your notebook. Sometimes you write a few words that described how it felt. Mm-hmm. And then the magic is when you go home, how do you capture that feeling and then put it into a story? That's where all the creation comes in. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Yeah, which reminds me of something else that you guys talked about in this interview, which is that we're all creators and that we all start with what we have and turn it into something new. Um, Mm -hmm. Whether that's um, kind of when you're cooking dinner, (laughs) you start with (laughs) certain ingredients and then you turn into a a meal. Or if you're starting with an idea that you use a medium like words or images to then turn into a story, you know, or something, Mm -hmm. some other sort of piece of art that could be shared.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, so if you're new to Ashley's work, where would you recommend people start?
1: He, he has such a great range of books. Mm-hmm. So there's poetry, picture books, um, down objects. I would just look him up in at your local library and, um, and kind of explore from there.
0: Sure, okay. Well, thank you so much again, both for talking today, but also um, for having this conversation at the festival with Ashley. It was really great to hear both of you kind of in conversation about your work. Well, thank you. Okay. Great, have a good one. You too, Bye. bye. And now, Ashley Bryan and Ari Chung in conversation about all things bright and beautiful at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing.
1: So I have a little story to tell. Um, I started my artistic career about 10 years ago, and I went to a SCBWI conference. It's short for Society of Children's Books Writers and Illustrators. And I met Ashley about eight years ago at my first conference. Uh, At that conference, I was so inspired because Ashley has persevered through the depression, racial discrimination, and he's able to bring such beauty. It through words and imagery, and so today I, I'm so honored to be able to ask him all the questions I've been wondering for the last 10 years, <laughs> and, uh, and we, I want to really unlock a lot of um, his history as well as the secrets of life of being so joyful and living with a childlike curiosity. Oh, good. So, um, the first thing I'd, I'd like to ask you about is uh, growing up in in, uh, in Harlem in the 1920s. And the Bronx. And the Bronx. What was that like?
2: Yeah, born in Harlem, raised
1: in the Bronx in New
2: York City. And you had a big family? Six children, four boys, two girls, three cousins who my parents raised when my aunt died, tenement apartments, five, six stories, head and foot in the beds.
1: <laughs> were your parents creative? Yes, they were.
2: They had us. That's already created <laughs> six children. <laughs> yes, to and of course, my mother, um, she sang from one end of the day to the other, always singing. When friends visited, they look at me and say, your mother sings. I thought all mothers sang, <laughs> and so the hymns that I hear today, I know I hear my mother singing.
1: When she was singing, did images come to your head even as a child back then? Yes, always.
2: That's what words do. They create images. And my dad was a printer. He learned, uh, he was an apprentice. They were born in Antigua in the West Indies. And he was an apprentice as a young boy to the printing trade. When they came to the United States in the early 20s, when there's great migration of peoples from, the blacks from the Caribbean islands. They settled in New York in the early 20s, and the children were all born and raised in New York City. My dad, when he came, was given the mop and the broom. And later on, I asked my dad about racial discrimination or so and how it was with him. He didn't talk about what he said was, they they gave me the mop and the broom. So I mean, he says, I'm in these big hotels downtown in New York and all I could see is those pretty legs going by. I knew I wouldn't last. So I went to the British Consulate and I got a letter from them saying i had been in the First World War and I'm apprentice as a printer. I would like a job in downtown New York with the Italian printers, Muranos and Bellini's and he got in and that's what he did even through the, the Depression years when their work ended, he set his own shop in downtown New York on Christie Street, and that's what he did till he retired. Wow. Find a way, he didn't tell me, you must persevere and find a way. He just said, those pretty legs, I knew I wouldn't last. So he went to a higher authority. To it was the British government. For each one of us, we're talking about higher authorities here. It doesn't matter who that is, it could be your mother, your father, a, a friend, or anyone but don't be stopped because of some kind of stupid regulation.
1: So you learned that firsthand from your dad. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about the neighborhood in, uh, in Harlem in the Bronx. Well, you know, I grew up as a sense of community.
2: Uh, that's what I've lived. I didn't think there was anything other for an individual than to try to create community wherever you are. That apartment, Tenement House, we knew everyone. We looked after everyone. And in the good weather, the tenants, we'd be out on the street. They'd be playing instruments or games or whatever, and they looked after the children. That was community. I now live on a little island off of Acadia National Park. I'm a black person. Less than 1% of black people in the state of Maine. I have a scholarship from college that gave me a chance to paint outdoors in Maine. And I asked the Maine students, find a place for me on one of those islands off the coast, because at Acadia National Park we'd visit I we'd see them. And I said, find a place. I come to this little island with all of my gear, someone reaches for it and passes it to the next person who passes it. I said, oh. It's a chain of hands. Just like the tenement apartment in which I grew up. I was home, that was family.
1: Was it a diverse uh, neighborhood? I'm the diversity. Yeah. <laughs> right, in Maine. But in, in the Bronx? Um, in the oh, 19th. the Bronx, it was mixed community. It was, it was mixed.
2: Yes, there was the Irish, the Italian, the German, mm-hmm. the French, all within that Bronx area. Which I had a large Jewish community. Baskade Avenue, Billy Bathgate, that novel was built on that street of Jewish markets. And that's the area in which I live. As a child in elementary school, I saw this great big church with bells that rang and bright colored windows. And I said to my Ma, I want to go to that great big pretty church. So my Ma took me to that church. I was the first black to enter. It was a German Lutheran church with German services in the 20s when I entered and English services. I grew up in that church, and the the children in that um, elementary class with me had been my friends through life. German students, German-speaking, they were speaking English, to children, but they came from a generation of German-speaking
1: people. See, I think that's so wonderful, because you grew up in a diverse community, and and everyone... A diverse community,
2: yes. Right, and everyone
1: was family in, in, in the neighborhood.
2: So you taught something important you, you have had programs on racism here, and you know what an invented word that is. There's no such thing. We all of one blood, of different blood types. That's all. You may come from, say, um, Johannesburg in South Africa, from Helsinki in Finland, from Tokyo in Japan, but that's your definition. When you create as European countries did, a white, a black, a yellow, a brown. That's fictitious. That has no meaning at all. But so much of our attention is focused on that kind of right. thinking. Forget it. But we have to deal with it because it, it, we're still going you know, to think on racism, is what it, in the folk. Uh, but think through it. So if when, we are of one blood, right. of one family, that's right. What does the color have to do, or, or whether That's you come right. from China or Japan or from Israel or wherever?
1: That's right. We're we're all under God's yeah. God's God's. We're all God's children. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Praise okay. God. Um, so coming from this diverse community, you had uh, you went to pr- pr- predominantly a white school. Is that right? Or they were always. There were always um, people of different
2: nationalities in our class, mm-hmm. three or four okay. blacks, right. and the rest were white students. So I was used to growing up with um, that predominance of the white community around the blacks. Although right. in the Bronx, there would be a house of black tenants, and then across the street or, or would be white tenants. And they had also sometimes even a private house mixed in with the tenement houses. It was in that open structure in that way, and that's why it held until uh, an expressway barreled through the neighborhood and wiped out the Italian
1: and the German mm. communities, mm-hmm. and it became, people began leaving areas. Tell us about your uh, teachers that encouraged you in, uh, in, into pursuing art, and um, how, did that, how did they influence you? The, the arts? Your teachers in school, how did they help oh. you with art? You know, all through elementary,
2: junior, and high school, all white teachers. During the Depression, yes, always encouraged because of my talent. Always given paper and materials by these teachers. High school, Theodore Roosevelt High School in the Bronx. In all the special clubs, teachers. I'm in the, my in my graduating year in high school. They helped me create a strong portfolio
1: because I needed a scholarship to go on to college. Right. And the first school that you applied to uh, rejected you based on race, is that right? Yeah, the school that I went to to try to get a scholarship. Right, the, the very first one? Well, were...
2: the, well, when I went to the schools, they looked at my portfolio and said, this is the best portfolio we have seen, but it would be a waste to give a scholarship to a colored person. Now, that's 1940, New York City. I'm not talking about Alabama, Mississippi, or Georgia. No, that's what I was told. Six children, three cousins my parents raising. There's no way I could go on. I went back to the high school. They were surprised. They knew I was black. I knew I was black. <laughs> and they, but they, I, I don't know what I've done without them. They said, listen, Ashley, I graduated in January at 16. They said... Come back and do a postgraduate study with us and help us with the yearbook. And in the summer, you take the exam for the Cooper Union School of Art and Engineering. They do not see you there. I took the exam for the Cooper Union. One exercise in drawing, one in architecture. You brought a bar of plasticine clay, the third was in sculpture. You did those exercises, you put them on the tray, you put the tray on the platform of the Great Hall, the Great Hall of the Cooper Union, every president have lectured there, founded in 1850 by Peter Cooper for the immigrant families of the city, everything free the lectures, the plays, the concerts. And that was holding. So we put my tray on the platform and left with my name and all that information. The next day, the professors came down and they selected those for the school. I was fortunate in being one selected for the Cooper Union School of Art, and I was the only black in my class. Those students became like family to me. We held on as friends because it's in college, that you can form friendships that will last for life. I keep telling the students, don't separate yourself. Get to know other students. Form friendships that will be meaningful to you because we all need that support as we go on. The things you're going to face after college can be so demanding, but when you have other colleagues who are going through the same thing, it encourages you. Yes, and so yes. I've always told them, don't be separate. All right, some may be this good and this fair. These are, these are fallen in love. So bring them in. Yeah. Get to know them. Those students at Cooper Union supported me through all the years.
1: So you had and some great teachers that helped you find a way. Yes, great teachers. A way. Yeah. And Cooper Union to this day is uh, free, for yes. tui- free tuition.
2: The sad thing is a few years ago, after the tremendous fights the trustees pushed through, uh, tuition fee. I don't know what it is, no. they. Um, but to have a school knowing what cost. I was teaching at Dartmouth in New England when I retired, and it was sometimes like then around fifty thousand a year. It's like eighty or ninety thousand now. I mean, how can a, a young person wanting to go further afford that kind of cost? So the Cooper Union stood out. It was one of the top ten in the country, always, in the fields of art and engineering. And it was tuition free. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, Ashley, tell us, um, how did you um, then enlist into the service? From after, Was that before yeah. art school or after?
2: Yeah. Well, I, was, um, I entered Cooper Union at 17. At 19, I was drafted into the Second World War. Now, um, at Cooper Union, I was painting victory murals with the students. It hadn't occurred to me about conscientious objective. I, that was not a thing I knew then. I knew what was happening in the war, the fascist pressures and taking over. So when I was drafted, I, didn't, I, I was in a segregated army, right off, you know.
1: And that must have been different for you because you were living in a diverse neighborhood, and yeah. then part of a great art culture at Cooper Union. Yes. Yeah.
2: And not only that, but unfortunately, white Southern officers who had very little respect for us. You know, So you had a, I'm always drawing, listen, I'm telling you, I have my sketch pad with me always. So when I'm in the army, I kept the sketch pad in my gas mask. And I always, when I had a moment, i take it out and i draw when I was not working. And the officers would try to stop me. I'd say, put me in the guardhouse now if it's <laughs> if a drawing. Because if I'm on my own time in the draw, I'm not going to look busy shuffling boxes because I was in a port battalion of stevedores, longshoremen, who handle all the supplies to back up an army, whether it was tanks, trucks, planes, food, clothes, ammunition. Stevedores handle that and I was drafted into the 502nd Port Battalion, and that was our work. We were stationed first in Boston in a schoolhouse, worked the docks of Boston.
1: So your art, you had to create no matter where you were, whether you were in the midst of war. Yeah. Um, did that help pull you through those dark times? You're, you're seeing a war that happens around you. How did art keep you alive?
2: Well, I think that's true of all of us. It is the art that keeps us alive, isn't it? I live on poetry, the spirituals, mm-hmm. <laughs> the art of the world. Um, that's at the heart of being human. Um, it's a desire to approach God <laughs> when you're doing anything from the depths of yourself. Because you have no answer. And art seems to make you try to draw closer understanding, you understanding know, who you are and... What is this effort that you are exuding to try to make something of uh, just to go beyond what is given and to do something more? And that's the, why I say I live by poetry and by the songs of the spirituals and other arts of course, but they're at the heart of everything. I, I could answer all your questions with a poem. Um, from the literature of English American poetry or sometimes um, I spent time in France and some time in Germany because of poetry that I loved of the two countries learning their poems in the language of the people mm-hmm. where you could get the rhythm, the, get the the, um, the the song of their languages the one thing you cannot tra- you can translate a meaning and love it but you the, the,
1: the, the sound is elusive. Right. This is a great, actually, segue to talking about your publishing career. So, Ashley Bryan is the first African-American author and illustrator in the United States. Um, and so you were creating <laughs> books, before anybody else were, uh, had discovered you, you were creating books for your own family, you were telling me that. Yes, about, family right? and
2: friends. But you know, it's interesting, that's what they've said of my work. Now, there was wonderful books for young people by black poets and writers like Langston Hughes and Paul Arnst Dunbar, Counté Cullen, they were not artists in the drawing and painting. When I did my first book of the folk tales, African folk tales, not only writing them but illustrating them, they said that. I didn't know that. I never gave it a thought because generally people either write or they illustrate. Now we have It's definitely like my friend Jan Spivey Gilchrist sitting up here in front. She can now both write and illustrate what she does. But that's unusual. Either you're a writer or an illustrator and editors will say, if you are a writer, do not bring me illustrations of some friend of yours. Because if I like your text and not the illustrations, what will we do? They always have a whole range of artists they will assign if they would like to use your text. But we do have today a number of picture book artists or, who have become uh, writers uh, for some of their books as well. But that's unusual.
1: Which I find is a natural integration because the, the images go with the words and if you write and illustrate, the whole book just seamlessly comes together.
2: Yeah, well it does right? in the other way because it's a wonderful thing for another person to interpret what you do most of theory. the arts yeah. are collaborative. I mean if you go to see a play or if you go to an opera or if you go to a symphony, it takes so many people to create the originality of a person in those enterprises. And also, even though you may do your book, it takes your editor, <laughs> a good editor to become who you are. Yes. And that editor yes. can know who you are. That's why Earlier on, authors always, writers always moved. If their editors moved to another company, they went with their writer.
1: Was there an editor that was influential in your life? Well, yes. Um,
2: well, the reason is early on when I tried to get into the field, there were no, very few blacks. And for 15 years, I could, I did not get in. In 1962, an editor at Athen- who had created the Athenaeum Young People's section, Jean Carl. She knew someone who was, had published something with her, told her about this man in the Bronx who was always doing his books for family and friends. And so she came to my studio. She didn't ask me to come to the office, she came to my studio. I was showing her my paintings and my um, things that I've done, but I had a table with my picture book art from African folktales, from Aesop fables, from um, Mother Goose and other things. When she left, she sent me a contract to begin work with Athenaeum. That was in 1962 that I met her. And in 1965, a person who became a dear friend, Nancy Larick, was working with black children with picture books. And at one point, a child looked up at her and asked, why are they always white? Right. And she wrote that important essay, The All-White World of Children's Books, and that's what shook up the field. A few years later, a small group black and white librarian got together. They said, uh, one of them, I know Coretta Scott King. I'll ask if we can use her name. We'll create our own awards because the few blacks in the field have never been recognized, the Caldecott, the Newberry, or any of those awards. They formed the Coretta Scott King Award around 1967, 1968. And they would have a breakfast. 50 people one year, 150 the next, 300 the next. They went on for seven years before the American Library Association took them in. But they did not give up. The Coretta Scott King Award began to recognize blacks who were doing writing and illustrating and first books in the Credit Scott King Award, which is now a recognized award and is also um, reviewed in the Horn Book mm-hmm. when the awards of the Caldecott and the Newbery are given. Each Wh- year. Which
1: you've won a couple times. Yes, the uh, yes, they've they well been Hans quite wonderful
2: in, in opening yeah. up my work to others, you yeah. Know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to talk about um, your beautiful book, Beautiful, black beautiful
2: Blackbird. Beautiful Blackbird. Wow. one of my favorites. Um,
1: <laughs> so on the end papers, you have scissors. Tell us about the scissors.
2: Yeah. In my books of collage, I always put on the end papers my mother's dressmaking scissors and her embroidery crochet scissors. Um, if you open up to the book, all the illustrations in this book are cut with colored papers and pasted in place in the compositions. All are done with these two scissors. And I've done an, um, my book of the spirituals, um, Let It Shine, and um, the Langston Hughes Sail Away, with collage, and you will find on the end papers my mother's just making scissors. Now, I was not allowed to play with those as a child. They were special. <laughs> when my mother died, the family gave me those scissors, and now I can play with them all day long. <laughs> But I love them, you know. It's, it's very touching because I, 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 I can feel my mother's hands in mine when yeah. I'm doing these collage books. It bring them very close, you know.
1: That's so beautiful. I think it's so wonderful. Um, as an artist, I, I often think about the process in creating artwork and putting yourself in the book as much yes. as possible. So I, yeah. I love that you, you include that, and yeah. it's nice... I yeah, think I mean, it really—it feels very warm it, oh, that you good. can tell that this came from a family heirloom. Uh, the narrative of, of Beautiful Blackbird is about um, all the other birds singing praise to the blackbird, which is the most yeah. beautiful. And, and they actually want to be like him, right? Yeah, they want to mock the black. <laughs> um, and so he, in the narrative, uh, he ends up uh, giving everyone. Horn, um, uh, yes.
2: Well, they all gather together, and then there they are. A ring dove says, my name is Ring Dove, but I don't have a ring around my neck. So Blackbird does that. You turn. He swings the ring around his neck. But you see, they're so excited about Blackbird, they sing with him, everybody, beak to beak. Beak to beak. Beak
1: to beak. Beak to beak. Beak beak. Peck, 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 peck. Peck, peck, peck. Spread your wings. Spread your wings.
2: Stretch your neck
1: that's your neck.
2: Black is beautiful, Uh aha!
1: Black is beautiful, Uh aha!
2: Black is beautiful, Uh aha!
1: Black is beautiful, Uh aha!
2: So I tell the teachers, when you're reading a story, you sometimes read straight through in a story you're doing. But you'll have occasion in stories where you can just stop, say a line, and have the children or the audience chant back. I do that with preschoolers, first graders, with graduate students in universities. (laughs) You know, it's important to me to break down that tightness we have, our fear of being the child. I want to tap the child in everyone in this audience or I don't get a response. That's the one thing I've always held to. When I was telling Ara that earlier at breakfast, that um, there is a statement that One of the most tragic experiences in life is the death of a child. So, never let the child within you die. The one thing we all have in common is we have survived childhood. And if I can remind you of that experience of adventure and excitement and of trying, of going beyond the the formality of who you think you are, I can get a, a back and forth play. And so I ask in many of my stories, in taking the voice of the oral tradition in the writing, to have occasion where you can have others chant back with you. You don't have to go all the way through. You will have some where you just read straight. But on others, you would like that back and forth play of your audience. And you can draw upon that with uh, the way I've worked with my African folktales. Yes, whether it's that or in beat the story, drum-pum-pum, a story of the Hausa. I have a hen and frog story. Where um, It's a lot of play in the language because I want to evoke these, sto- these languages of the hundreds of African tribes were not written. When scholars in the field wanted to get a written alphabet, many were missionaries or theologians getting a mission- so they could translate the Bible into the language of the hundreds of tribes. They would ask for a story. From the house of people, this story, Hen and Frog, I played with the, the oral tradition of average. I've told one tale. Told Here's tale. another. Call of your sister, call your brother. The frog and hen, one smith, they walked along together, hen strut, Two steps, a peck at a buck, frog a buck. Three half flicked his tongue at a flyer, strut. Two steps, a peck at a bug up. Three hops, a flick at a fly, hen a flap to wings uh, and spun around. Frog a- slapped his legs uh, and tapped the ground. Oh, and together now, clocked hen. How do you like the weather now? Croaked frog. <laughs> so you see, you try to open up a player voice and. <laughs> And you as teachers could have a great time in having them even chant back those words as you're going along. So that's what I have a lot of fun with. And um, it means a lot to me to reach that spirit of connecting. We're so separate, you know. Um, I love this conference in as, you know, they say faith, but how you stroll to understand what could that we know faith is a leap of some kind there's no explanation if you have any faith in anything you can there are no words for that it's something that you've made and have you see but um it's wonderful for all of you to be at a conference where they're trying yeah. to even stu- use the words to find some way of getting to the no words <laughs>
1: I just have a few more questions for you Ashley before we um, I want to save a little bit of time for, for you guys to ask Ashley questions as well um, so as you can see Ashley is 92 and going on 93 right? In July <laughs> but he is deo volante. my mother always said God willing
2: about everything I'll see you tomorrow God willing
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think you all agree with me Ashley has so much life and vibrancy to him uh, so what are the secrets in, in being excited and keeping that childhood curiosity alive?
2: I think a lot of it has to do with the people around me. I'm fortunate in having people I care for in the community in which I Now, I'm on this little island of 70 people, the Cranberry Islands off of, off of Acadia National Park. 70 people, lobster fishermen, carpenters, uh, general workmen, and me. <laughs> and the reason I can make that home is because I don't see distinctions of career or professionalism or work in any one. When I used my GI Bill abroad in southern France, in Aix-en-Provence, I chose Aix-en-Provence, not Paris. I wanted to be amongst people doing other things than the arts as well, although it was a Cézanne country, Mont-Saint-Victoire, Barrage. Zola and all, but I like other people who are not painting and drawing to see what I'm doing and visit me. My door is open. On the island, my door is Everything that I can offer as an artist, I've worked with the people of the island. A few years ago, the children of the island, the Islesford Elementary School, which was founded in the late 1800s, said, we want the school named Ashley Bryan School. <laughs> So they put it on the agenda of the town meeting, and so when it came up, they had their own advocates were there to, and a, a, and a representative 10-year-old at the town meeting to speak up if it wasn't voted for. <laughs> but it was overwhelmingly approved, so now it's the Ashley Bryan school. <laughs> so it's really great, the 18 children. <laughs> You have a great time. So, yeah. so
1: connecting, connecting to your community is one way of keeping young.
2: Yes, right? and, the, and through, as I say, I wake up each morning, yes, so on um, the right side, you get that hip thing, you know. At a certain age, you get a, a, a new hip, okay? But they suggest at my age, if you don't need surgery, just use your painkillers and let it go, so I'm fine. <laughs> I'm getting along fine. But the, the, the thing is that you just find that the spirit of what you're doing, anything, look, I, I, I try to break down what, who I am as an artist, and you as a painter, you as a, as a carpenter, you as a ditch digger, I try to break that down. I tell everyone, you cannot resist being creators transformers. You are dealing with materials that you must do something with to make it other than what it is. When people think, as an artist, I take a blank surface and I start painting uh, images on it, I'm transforming a blank surface. But I tell my friend when she's talking with me, I say, look, you have potatoes and a meat and a vegetable And if you don't do something to transform those, you don't have a dinner. You can't avoid transforming the material, anything you do, and making it something. For you to walk into this room, you have to transform a distance, the space you've walked, to get into here. The act of making something other, getting somewhere else with what you have at hand, is universal. You can give it all kinds of names, But that's the essence of who we are. That universality of transforming whatever is at hand, you see. I am saying words, and Ari is saying words. If you're not transforming them in some form of understanding, on your own terms, no two of you are doing the same thing. That effort, that that desire to make it so that it means something to you, is personal and original.
1: And you're still making work now. Yeah. Yes. Puppets and books. Yes.
2: yes. That, well, that will never end. Yeah. Fortunately. No, I am fortunate in having hand, head, heart. And so when I get up in the morning and start my work, I will say, I am going to paint the dahlias in the garden in summer, or I'll be out painting the hollyhocks. I have painted them five, six canvases so far. I'm on my seventh canvas. Ashley, you have never painted a hollyhock. You have never painted a dahlia. This is a new experience of adventure and discovery, this one. Yes, your biography will travel with you and become a part of it, you see. But you don't want to do what you know. I don't want to do what I have learned of painting that dahlia in itself again. I want, even though
1: you're always challenging it's yourself. painting
2: the flower, That is a wholly new world of adventure. And if everything you do, no matter how, else, you're cooking dinner, it's a new adventure. Make it at that. That's the way the child looks at the world, you know. Everything is a new adventure and an exploration and a transformation. Give them a beautiful big present. What are they doing? They're playing with the cardboard box, <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> so... So let, uh, thank you so much, Ashley. Let's uh, open up to the audience. Do you guys have questions? Just raise your hand over
0: here. Hey, Lisa here. We had a couple questions from the audience, but they weren't mic'd, So I'm going to repeat them for you here. The first person asked Ashley about the puppets that he creates out of found objects, including driftwood.
2: Oh, the puppets, Ashley Bryan's puppets. Well, that's, uh, that's from Walking the Shores. Well, as a child in New York City, my sister and I used to pick up Castle of Things on the garbage in the street. And um, we'd also go to the commercial street and get those books of fabrics of the interior decorators. And then I would do designs. My sister would make quilts, dresses, and I would make other things for our puppets and all. But we were always working with cast off things that people had no use for. When I walked the shore, other people walked the shore you can't resist picking up a shell, driftwood, a bone, things like that. Well, I've picked them up and when I take them and use them in, in that book of the puppets, mm-hmm. okay. yeah, the puppets, um, to me, the, to, to bring to life what is considered um, unimportant, not useful, not meaningful. When these puppets at times have been exhibited in museums across the country, They always say, even if it's an exhibit of puppets of other peoples as well, people stand before my puppets and make the most comment. Why? They know them. They know bones. They know driftwood. They know shells. They know these things that have been picked up. But now they've seen them offered to them in another uh, another life meaning. Yes. Uh,
1: Thank you. Ashley's always creating. Always creating. She's a good friend. Yes.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> More questions? Anybody else?
0: The next person asked Ashley what it was like to fight in Germany during World War II, given that he worshiped with so many Germans in his congregation in New York City.
2: Yeah, that's what's interesting. You see, I went back after the war. I, used, I had a Fulbright scholarship, I chose Germany. I wanted to see if I could work out the close friendships of my friends and families in New York City in the Bronx with the, what I experienced because we were in the Normandy invasion. The hundreds of ships lined up with all, you see it was the amphibious duck, which was a surprise weapon. You could unload trucks, tanks, ammunition, food into an, a, 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 a boat and it would become a truck on land. And so Normandy Beach was not expected to be a, ha- a beach where you could get um, um, that kind of material across, was the source of backing up the Allies when they got a foothold. After those four to 5,000 men were slain, getting that foothold, and they sent across the next day black quartermasters to clear the shore and to see what they could demine of those land. The third day, we go ashore, having um, unloaded our ship and we dig foxholes, hoping not to dig into an undiscovered mine, which would happen. The lieutenant commander of our battalion, who in, when we were in Glasgow before leaving, I went to him because my company officers would not give me permission to attend the Glasgow School of Art. And I knew about that school of art because of its incredible architecture and I wanted to go, my company commander said no. I went over their heads to the battalion commander, and that Lieutenant Colonel Pierce gave me permission. So when we'd come back from 10 hours of work, looking forward to going to the city, they'd say, you are um, restricted, you cannot go out. We're continually restricted. I would dress to go. And the fellows supported me because they saw I was putting something over on those officers. And they always respected my art, which I used for them at times. I was so inept at handling cargo and stuff, they'd push me inside, you go ahead and draw. (laughs) because I couldn't get with their rhythm. But at any rate, this this lieutenant, unfortunately, stepped on a mine on the shore and had to be removed. But um, we would be on that shore June, July, August, September, until the storms closed that port down and could no longer be used. But for those months, from our foxholes, every day, that lineup with a hundred of Liberty ships would come in day after day, being unloaded, because Le Havre and Marseille at first were held by the fascists, and then, but they never closed that Normandy beach port.
1: So after the war, you returned back and studied in Germany for
2: a while? I went to Germany. Why? Not only for my friends, I love the poet Rainer Maria Rilke. I loved him in English translation, and I wanted to hear the sound in German. You know, here we are at this. There's a poem of that says, Was wirst du tun, Gott, wenn ich sterbe? What are you going to do, God, when I die? Ich bin dein Krug, wenn ich zerchebe. I'm your cup, when I'm shattered. Ich bin dein Trank, wenn ich verderbe. I am your drink, when I am thirsty. Ich bin dein Wand, I am your cloak, und dein Gewerbe, and your profession, nach mir hast du keinen Sinn. Without me, you don't make any sense. I love that kind of challenge to God. Lösch mir die Augen aus, ich kann dich sehen. Take out my eyes, I can see you. Werf mir die Ohren zu, ich kann dich hören, I can still hear you. Und ohne Füße, kann ich zu hören. Without feet, I can still go to you. Und ohne Mund noch, Without a mouth, I can witness for you. Brich mir die Arme ab. Break off my arms. Ich halte dich mit meinem Herzen. i hold with my heart, as it with a hand. Und werfst du in meinen Herren den Brand, toss into my brain the flaming torch, so werde ich dich auf meiner Blut tragen. Then I will carry you on my blood. I just, it's so extraordinary poetry. What I live by, what it offers you. To stand up, you're nothing. But you're trying to make some appeal of attention. You know, I'm going to hold on to you, God, no matter what I suffer.
1: It's extraordinary. Ashley? Thank you. you. Do you have a poem that we can do together to end Uh, with? um, Well, there's... (laughs) Well,
2: yes, uh, Langston Hughes, um, I Dream a World. Okay, you guys ready? I dream a world where man no other man will scorn, where love will bless the earth and peace its paths adorn. I dream a world where all will know sweet freedom's way, where cowardice nor bless the earth nor count as blights our day. A world I dream where black or white, whatever race you be, will form the union of the earth and every man is free. Where wretchedness will bow its head and joy like a pearl attend the needs of all mankind. Of such I dream our world. Langston.
1: Thank you all. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Ari. Thank you Ashley.
0: <laughs> Many thanks to Ari Chung and Ashley Bryan. You can learn more about Ari's work at ari.com. That's A-R-R-E-E dot com. And read all about Ashley's amazing life story and see his artwork at ashleybryancenter.org. The Ashley Bryan Center was created in 2013 to preserve, celebrate, and share broadly Ashley's work and his joy of discovery, invention, learning, and community. They're doing great work, check it out. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes Sarah Bass, John Brown, Sadie Berger, Donald Hedinga, Lou Klatt, Scott Jose, Jennifer Holberg, Bob Hudson, Anika Captime, Carolyn Meiskins, Deb Reinstra, Sarah Ternage, Debbie Visser, and Jane Zwart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you're especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing.